You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 66. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today, we're discussing the first Doctor story, Edge of Destruction. Not the first Doctor story, but the story, story. from the first Doctor. There we <laughs> go. William, William Hartnell Dest- story. Yes, a William <laughs> Hartnell story. And joining me today on the panel, as always, as you hear, are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, Dom. So this is actually the third uh, doctor story, uh, first Doctor story. Uh, so we've we Who's had on first. Yes, we had the yeah. uh, the the um, uh, what was it called? The fir- the the first one with the well, where we meet an the doctor, child, an earthly child, right? And the which caves. then leads into the tribe of gum or fifty thousand BC or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> exactly, the caveman story, which yep. is all packaged as one story today. Yep. Then the second uh, is the Daleks, and yep. now we have the Edge of Destruction. Right. Uh, and it's an interesting progression we get here because, you know, we have a, an episode that introduces the doctor. Then we have a sort of historical story, you know, back in time, which was kind of, as we know, is was the idea in the when they pitched it to the BBC is would be this. They would travel to different time periods it would be educational because it's historical. Uh, so they would travel back in time. Then we have a futuristic science fictiony story where they're going to was- another planet. Uh, and that was the other part of the pitch. When yep. we're not learnt, teaching the kids about history, we'll teach them about science. Yep. Uh, and then uh, we get this episode, which is which is neither. It's it's very different, and it's essentially a locked room uh, story, uh, yeah, a locked correct. room mystery, a and, bottle show. Yeah. Um, and, and Jimmy, and, you you'd said at some one point that there was a, a, a an outside the the story production reason for this. Yeah, there is a reason. Um, So when Doctor Who was originally greenlit by the BBC, it was only given a 13-episode run that they were committed to. They might extend it. They might cancel it at that point. So they only had 13 episodes. An Unearthly Child, that story arc took up four. The Daleks took up seven for a total of 11. That means there's only two episodes left. And you got to fill those two episodes to meet your 13 episode commitment, but you can't go beyond those because you don't know if you're going to be canceled. So they had to write a two-parter to fill that in. Um, Also, and they actually apparently were canceled during that uh, initial 13 episode run, but then the BBC changed their minds and they extended the series further. So they then began writing the Marco Polo story, which was a very lavish production, lots of costumes and sets for that. And they uh, needed extra time to get ready for that. So they had a time and money problem that led them to say, "Okay, we need a two parter. We don't need to spend any money on it. uh, So let's do a bottle show which then turns into, since we're not doing history or science, it turns into a character-driven show. And so actually this episode or this two-parter plays a a kind of a pivotal role in the development of the program because up to now, I mean, originally like Ian and Barbara were kidnapped by the doctor uh, to go traveling. It wasn't their choice. 
and they've kind of bumped around in time. They're kind of lost in time. They want to get back to Earth, but they're not there. And it's not until this story that they really bond with the doctor and become willing travelers. So let's and, listen to the sound of the trailer before we, because uh, I think we're about to get started talking about the, the content of the episode itself. So uh, let's listen to the sound of the trailer to get a feel for it. And then we'll come back and talk about uh, the episode itself. Grandfather. Grandfather. The ship can't crash. It's impossible. Well, there's something here inside the ship. But that's not possible. The doors were open. But where would it hide? In one of us. Something terrible is happening to all of us. There's a strong force at work somewhere which is threatening my ship. You sabotaged my ship. Oh, don't be so stupid. I know it. I'm sorry, but you attacked us. How dare you! Can it be possible, then, that this is the end? I have to say the the BBC was very forward thinking in its uh, design of trailers. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great I, trailer I found on uh, on YouTube. <laughs> I, I want to give one quick definition of a term that Jimmy used: bottle show. Oh, sure. Uh, it's a production term. It's a term for an episode that is it's a self contained episode that is on existing sets. So you see it a lot in Star Trek, the Star Trek series. You mm-hmm. see it a lot in Doctor Who. Uses it quite a bit. They already had these sets of the TARDIS. You know, they're already built. They're all ready to go. They just fit it in with their recording. And you don't have to, you don't have any major expenses of traveling to other locations. You don't have any guest stars. You know, you notice everyone in this episode is the regular cast. It's not, you know, someone else coming in. So it's a, it's a very, very cheap way to record an episode as a filler. Yeah, this and clip shows being the two classic money saving bottle shows and clip shows being the two classic money savers. Yep. Uh, so here's the here's the gist of the uh, the two part edge of destruction. Um, as we open the, the 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 folks on the TARDIS are thrown to the floor. Doctor Susan, Ian, and Barbara all unconscious. And as they wake, they are acting strangely. Then we have these unexplained events occurring and the suspicion that there's an alien force is at work. Um, the doctor at one point accuses Ian and Barbara of sabotage. Um, and then it gradually dawns on them that the, what what's happening is the TARDIS itself is trying to warn them of something. And the doctor realizes that the fast return switch to use when they were leaving Scarrow in the last episode in the Daleks is stuck because of a broken spring. <laughs> And the ship has been plunging to the beginning of time and its own destruction. Yeah. I love the fact that this is about a, something that I have experienced in my own computer keyboard, which is something yep. gets stuck under the spring and, and, and the E key is stuck down. I mean, I've never had consequences as just as bad as, you know, the destruction of the TARDIS. But um, so it's 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 a it's a kind of a funny thing, although I'm I, I, I have to admit I was a little confused. Uh, going through mm-hmm. this about why if if it was something as simple as the TARDIS trying to warn them, why were they also act, acting so strangely in this? 
Apparently, they were affected by the initial explosion that occurs that knocks them all to the floor. Um, the doctor is physically injured by that, and he spends much of the two-parter with a kind of futuristic bandage around its head, around yep. his head, which is kind of a nice touch because the it has lines on the bandage that disappear as he gets progressively healed, yeah. which is kind of yep. a neat touch. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in to give you a sense of uh, my notes on just the first five minutes, um, I have there's this initial shock. The crew seems drunk. Susan has amnesia. Um, she doesn't uh, she doesn't. Uh, know who Barbara is. She doesn't recognize Ian. She does recognize the doctor as grandfather. Um, there, we get to see more of the TARDIS in these first five minutes. It's not just the, the control room. We get to see the food machine, the sleeping quarters. Ian seems to think he's back on Earth and seeing Barbara in the school at Coal Hill right. School. Yeah. Um, so he's hallucinating. He and he thinks of Susan as Susan Foreman, the student. He's forgotten yep. his adventures with her. He's got this disordered reasoning process. When they see the doctor laying on the floor, Ian says, "Shouldn't we help him?" And <laughs> there's this strange, eerie, stilted situation. Ian instantly feels his chest and says, "His heart seems all right." Yeah, which is which has led some to speculate time lords don't grow their heart second heart until they regenerate. Um, <laughs> and, and the doctor, as he's laying, uh, as he's laying on the floor, you know, not fully conscious, he's, he also is having some kind of traumatic experience in his mind where he's saying, I can't take you back, Susan. I can't apparently expressing an anxiety he has about Susan wanting to go back to Gallifrey, who, which we don't even know of at this point. Right, right. Um, and this is all before the five minute mark. Right. So it, it's really an intense thing. There's a lot I, that happens here. Yeah, go ahead, Father Corey. I, I have to say, though, it was, it was kind of hard to watch that, though, because it was so melodramatic. <laughs> yes. It was overacted to the worst. I mean, well, it, I mean, it, it did the job, but it was just it was that first bit was so was difficult to watch i have to admit i have to well uh, one of the things i, I, I got I the like sense it. of is it it felt like a stage play and and the thing yeah. is is mm-hmm. the difference between a stage play and and uh, filmed drama is a stage play that the actors tend to have to be a little broader they have to overact a little bit because right. they're trying to reach that crowd way out there and so they have to right. be, you know do and, more and i feel like that the, the actors kind of got this sense of because it's a bottle show we were talking about that they were they were almost like doing a stage play as opposed to a teleplay. And and again, I wonder how much of that is because this was still early days of television. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got to remember. I mean, as much as I didn't like it, you know, that's one thing I do try to remember is this was 1963. This was still very early television, both in Great Britain and here in the United States. Yes. So a lot you watch a lot of contemporary television from here in the United States, and it's very similar, very overacted and, you know, very almost like stage or radio drama. Well, even early Star Trek, which is just a little after the, when this About five years aired. after this. Well, no, actually, early Star Trek is um, is is actually Six, somewhat contemporaneous. Um, 66. Yeah, 66. So only a couple years. years. Um, and and even that is still 
like you said, it, there's a lot of much, much greater overacting. I mean, the famously William Shatner overacting style, uh, <laughs> but he's not the isn't only one. Just, isn't that just William Shatner? Well, well, no, but, <laughs> no, well like, in the early episodes, Spock is barking orders and stuff. Yeah. Like, I mean, even, you know, even as you go on, um, just like the, who is that famous actor who was in Batman as well? Um, who played the, the Riddler. West. Um, you know, that famous, Riddler, uh, the black Frank and white Gorshin? episode. What's that? Frank Gorshin. Oh, Frank Gorshin. Yeah. So he was in like in Star Trek as well. And like he was in both actually in Batman and in Star Trek. Yeah. You know, he was that part of that the typical of the time, that overacting, that over like over mm-hmm. the top mm-hmm. uh, thing. It's which, you know. I mean, let that be your last battlefield where yes. he, he played either Belial or Loki, whatever, whichever one of the ones he was. Yes. He was half black, half white on opposites from the others. Or that, that one. Yeah. Um, so, but, but just to kind of call to mind that I mean, Frank Gorshin as uh, overacting actor yeah. is, is sort of in, emblematic. In, in, yeah. in terms of the broadness of the acting, I mean, think about the remit they were given for this episode. You know, this is a bottle show. You're going to be on this one set. You've got to use, emo- you've got to get emotion into the story and Pretty soon you're going to be you're going to be paranoid. You're you're out of your mind. Mm-hmm. You're you don't have your memories, and soon you're going to be attacking each other with scissors. <laughs> right. So yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, and so you you had to have this this yeah the, the, you had to amp it up, amp up the the tension, and um and you didn't have a lot to work with. I mean nowadays you have special effects and and other stuff like that to kind of add to the tension. Uh, so they you know they basically had a stage set. Uh, which is so I mean for what they had to work with yeah um I I did find a I feel like that the this whole idea of a possible alien hiding inside people the the locked door mystery the the bottle show mm-hmm. reminded me a lot of uh the 10th doctor story planet midnight which mm-hmm. is one of my yep. favorites I love that one. Oh, it's, oh, yeah. it's that one's awesome yeah, yeah. Uh, and and in fact I I really like that the, the there's a sort of story that constrains I think you you know you almost always have a better story when there are constraints when this mm-hmm. when when you have to really pare down the writers and the actors and the directors have to pare down and have less to work with and it has to be about the human the humanity of the people involved and right. and human nature and I and I feel I feel like that's that was the high point of this I mean if I could set aside my chronological snobbery against you know the way old TV worked <laughs> yeah well, uh, the the difference, and I like that analogy, Dom, between this and Midnight. The the difference between this and Midnight, other than the production values and the greater sophistication of modern TV productions, is um, that in Midnight, it's just the Doctor with a with a cat trapped with a group of guest characters, mm-hmm. whereas here it's all of the main characters are trapped together and nobody else. Right. And so if you're if you've been, I mean, imagine you're a child following the series from the beginning back in 1963 and it's now 1964 and you are in love with these characters and suddenly Susan is trying to stab Ian with this long pair of scissors. I mean, wow. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Um, I have to say, speaking of Susan, that that whole scene where Ian has to carry Susan to the bed, I just, it just felt very awkward and uncomfortable. (laughs) uh, It just... (laughs) Yeah, sixty three was more innocent. Yeah, and and you know, but like today, you would never have like a, a man carrying the young girl to the to her bed because she's hurt. I mean, it just would not happen. Um, but I did like the fancy Murphy beds that they have on the TARDIS. It's, uh, it's I hope they still have them. 
Yeah, I, I like the fact we and we do get to see them in other episodes, too. But I like the fact we get to see more of the TARDIS. That's one of the things about the William Hartnell era that especially in the beginning that we do get to see much more than just the control room. I mean, they don't have a budget, you know, to make really elaborate sets, but we get to see a lot more of it. Whereas by, you know, the time of Tom Baker or Peter Davison, it all we ever get to see virtually is 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 just the control room. Once in a while, they'll have an episode with a console or with, a, you know, a bedroom or something like that. And that or not a, a, a corridor or a bedroom, but that's about it. Although yeah. in, the, in the final, uh, the fourth doctor story, we get the uh, the cloister, which was an interesting yeah. uh, choice. Um the, There's also a Centauran episode where we get a tour of the TARDIS that they filmed in like a hospital somewhere. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so um, it just and then there's a uh, so so as things progress, we get this reference to a, an adventure that the Doctor and Susan had before meeting Ian and Barbara. Yeah, to the on the, Quinnis, the planet Quinnis of the fourth universe. Yeah, which is very. <laughs> and if, and it, and, if, and they almost lost the TARDIS there, Susan says. And if you want to know what happened, go to Big Finish <laughs> and get get the Companion Chronicles episode called Quinnis. It's so funny. It's like if there's a reference to anything in any Doctor Who episode, there's a Big Finish story about it. I love that. Uh, we need to get them to uh, to advertise yeah. on our show. Yeah, we, Big Finish, if you're listening, it. please contact Dom. <laughs> You're taking advertisers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so it was it was kind of a neat. It, it's a it's a uh, it's a, a universe expanding in a sense. The the Doctor Who universe expanding sort of uh, um, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but it's a way uh, for the for the writers to kind of create the sense of it's a bigger universe that we're living in. Um, mm -hmm. it, modern shows do this all the time. They create a milieu for the uh, the shows, but uh, and this is a way of doing that of saying, oh, by the way, you know, this didn't all just start with Ian and Barbara. You know, there's stories you haven't heard of and creates this idea, this promise right. of, of so much more. Yeah. Um, so let's see a uh, few notes. Uh, now, I think that Father Corey and I just have a different appreciation of this two-parter. I love it. I think it's great. Um, it, Yeah, I recognize the acting is pretty broad and, you know, it's old style television and it is kind of stage play like. But I just I, I love the risks they take in this. I mean, especially just to go back to the scissors thing, having having Susan, you know, attempting to stab Ian is just something that that really is unexpected for an early 64 children's television program. And in fact, um, the Standards Bureau at the BBC for children's television complained about this. And Verity Lambert, the show's producer, wrote a letter of apology um, mm. to them for that for the scissors scene. And I was watching an interview with her where she says, in hindsight, she thought that that was too far, that she they shouldn't have done that. But I totally disagree. I mean, OK, maybe for 1964 children's television, it wasn't appropriate. But for for now, watching it as an adult, it's like that really ramps up the drama in a very effective way. Um, you also have these creepy things. I mean, the music is creepy. The oh, doors, yeah. when the doors open, we've got this white void out there. We have the confusing messages being sent by the TARDIS. Incidentally, the first episode, An Unearthly Child, hinted that the TARDIS was alive. In this, we get it established that the TARDIS is in some sense conscious mm. because it's trying to warn them 
Uh, and they later pay that off way on down the line with the doctor's wife, where the TARDIS mm -hmm. is temporarily embodied and can talk to the doctor. But here it has this alien thought process that it can't just communicate in a normal way. So it's like taking images from their past travels and showing them to them as a way of warning them that something's right. happening. Um, and then you have the inner character paranoia where even after they start to recover their memories, Ian and Barbara have been kidnapped. And the doctor realizes kind of as a way he in a way he didn't in the first episode when he actually kidnapped him, that may have repercussions. They may try to sabotage the TARDIS to get him to take them back to England. That's yeah. not an unreasonable inference. And it sets up the inner character paranoia in this episode. In, in, well, one, one thing one thing oh, I want to mention, which, too. Which, which which then leads to the doctor threatening to put them off the ship <laughs> on some random planet that may be totally hostile. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to mention, too, you know, I, I, I didn't I, as this, this episode progressed, I did like it for many of the reasons you mentioned, Jimmy. Mm -hmm. um, it really did. Once once you get past that initial five minutes where it was so melodramatic, it, it, they really settled into the episode, and especially mm -hmm. the second part. Uh, you know, it really was advancing the storyline so much more where we, we do hear that, oh, by the way, you know, the the TARDIS really is a conscious entity. It's not just a, a collection of, you know, switches and valves and servos and things like that, but it actually has a consciousness to it. And one thing I really did like about it is this is the first time I think we see the doctor do the I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, unlike, yeah. you know, modern who, unfortunately, where the doctor is this all knowing, all wise, all always got a great plan up his sleeve. The doctor says, I don't know how to do fix this. I don't know what to do about this. I don't know this ship well enough to repair this problem. Mm hmm. Right. You get well, this is what the, maybe the first time, as far as I can tell uh, from from my watching it, that we we get the idea that this ship is not the doctor's own it's not he's not the master of this ship this is a correct you know something he stole as we find out uh that you know that he doesn't understand all of its abilities all of its capabilities um mm -hmm. and 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 so he's in some ways as much uh you know in the dark about things as as the and audience is and it's interesting they actually again they play this off when you look at the uh twice upon a time the uh the 12th and first, if you will, regeneration episode, Christmas right. episode they just had, where the 12th Doctor pilots the TARDIS perfectly. And right. it's the first Doctor's TARDIS. It's this TARDIS, mm -hmm. but he pilots it perfectly. Right. Over know, so the, the first Doctor doesn't know. Part of the problem isn't that the, the just that the navigation controls are busted, but also that the first Doctor didn't know how to uh -huh. pilot it as well. Right. The intervening couple thousand years gave him some time to... <laughs> learn it. Learn how to how to file. He it. finally pulled out the manual and actually read it. Oh. One of the uh, so one of the things that happens in this episode because they're you know amping the drama is they have to talk frequently in an excited manner and that poses a challenge for William Hartnell who is known for blowing his lines or yep. in in acting terms fluffing his lines. Yep. They're they're called Billy fluffs. Uh, when he does them. And and you get quite a number of Billy Fluffs in this. Um, apparently, behind the scenes, he did one deliberately just to crack everybody up. Uh, one of the recurring things they talk about in this is, um, in terms of trying to identify what the problem is, is there's something on the TARDIS called the fault locator. 
yep. which is apparently a kind of self-diagnostic system. And so they're always talking about the fault locator. And apparently in one take, he deliberately said the fornicator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they, there is, though, towards the end of, um, of, of, the, of the second part, or as they've realized what's happening and that the fast return switch has sent them hurtling back in time to the beginning of a solar system, which is just forming. And William Hartnell has this speech that he gives where he's it it's very interestingly lit it's like the room is seems darker and he's up against he's got his back to the console and the camera slowly dollies in on him because they didn't have zoom lenses then so yep. the camera is slowly dollying in on him to create added drama as he gives this scientifically inaccurate speech about the formation of solar systems yeah. and the wonder of it all. And even though what he's saying doesn't really make sense scientifically, he says it really well. And he's got this big speech that he gets through effectively without yeah. fluffing his lines. And some have yep. said it's kind of his finest moment in that regard. Yeah. Well, as long as they didn't didn't have to do multiple takes of it. Yeah. <laughs> they well, didn't have the budget for multiple takes. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I wonder that's about why he, the, that's why you see a couple of times where he stammers and he kind of stutters a line or two. That's true. Uh, you, you know, one of the that's one of the actually that solar system speech. I wondered if that was part of this the education aspect of the show. How there were like oh, the, yeah. this was you know one of the reasons for the show is it would be educational, and so oh, we have to put in this little bit where he explains how a solar system is formed as best as they they perhaps maybe as best they knew in 1963. Um, but uh, it was I thought that was interesting. So mm -hmm. so, so um, the resolution is that we have this the spring that gets stuck and takes them back to the beginning of time, uh, which is worse than when a spring gets stuck. Like I said, on my keyboard and it erases a line of text in my word processor. Uh, this is erases time. Um, and so the TARDIS is, had been trying to warn them about this. And that's where all the odd things were happening. The, the clocks and the watches uh, going wrong and the fault locator showing this, this fault over and over again. And, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and then the uh, the whole bank of the fault locator lights up from which the doctor concludes the TARDIS is about to disintegrate. Right. Which is which is really dramatic. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, is it wasn't the doctor that figured it out. Mm -hmm. It was as far as Barbara's. It was I recall. Barbara. Right. Yeah. Where and, she's looking at the clock. She's looking. Everything's going on. Wait a second. Something happened here. Right. And then the doctor goes, oh, there it is. OK, <laughs> now we know. Yeah, and originally as scripted, it was going to be Ian and Barbara together figured it out. But to heighten the drama, they focused just on Barbara, and she intuits the solution from all the clues the TARDIS is giving them. So at the end, there's a really nice moment between Barbara and the Doctor. Like after the yeah. Doctor accuses Barbara and Ian of, uh, of of sabotage and and threatening to put them out of the ship, um, he I think he feels. Uh, chagrined and, and regretful later and essentially apologizes. Um, but there's this, so there's this nice moment where he, uh, he approaches her and, um, you know, they've landed on a, on a planet that, uh, it's got snow and they're going to go out and play in the snow, I guess. And, uh, he, you know, he says, uh, you know, you haven't forgiven me, have you? And she, and she's, you've said terrible things to us. And, and he, uh, he basically apologized. I'm trying to think of, he, you know, she says, as we learn about each other, so we learn about ourselves. Um, 
Because I accuse you unjustly, you were determined to prove me wrong. So you put your mind to the problem and luckily you solved it. Um, and uh, I think and that's this is really, it's the moment where they, as characters, really bond. Yeah. So they become allies in this moment once he humbles himself. Uh, there's also a, a moment where they mention that uh, uh, she she notices we have a, he says we have a very extensive wardrobe here because she's wearing some new yeah. clothes that yeah <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> <We've>, <laughs> that's becomes part of it uh, and Ian is wearing this wonderful Ulster coat which is uh, great uh, when they go to which play is in the stuff. huge and enormous <laughs> and the doctor says it was a bit big for me and I got it from Gilbert and Sullivan and Ian says I thought it was built for two yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm guessing this but must have been just in the wardrobe department of the BBC. And they didn't want to spend time. Uh, they had a, they had a Sherlock it. Holmes episode that they did at some point to decide, <laughs> let's just reuse this. Exactly. Yeah, this could have been Mycroft's Ulster. So at one yeah. point they say uh, the do- before that, the doctor um, says to Ian, uh, uh, you know, I, I really believe I've underestimated that young lady in the past. Chartow. Any idea what he means with it? Was that a fluff of the line or? I don't understand. Like he's the chart. I didn't get was, that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It was very strange. It was, uh, I don't know if it's a, if it's a nickname or if any of our listeners know uh, what that was a re- reference to. I, I might've been just to flub the line, but uh, you know, we'll, maybe someone knows more. Um, so. He might've been referring to Chesterton because he periodically says the wrong name instead of Chester, mm-hmm. instead of Ian Chester. <clears throat> now I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's like when the 12th ahead. doctor refers to, uh, to math or, uh, so, uh, uh, um, gosh, I can't remember. I'm terrible at remembering names. Uh, Clara's boyfriend. When he, Danny Pink. Danny Pink calls him math uh, or other nicknames. Yeah. Um, or calling Mickey Ricky or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. So a couple of notes I had on this episode. Sure. Um, Ian, at one point when he's on the floor, this is actually in the second episode. So it's after they've worn over, gotten over their initial shock. But Ian like gets another one. And as Barbara is trying to help him, he like tries to strangle her. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't last very long, but he's but it's another, you know, unexpected interpersonal tension moment. Um, to actually seeing Ian trying to strangle Barbara. I mean, wow. Um, also, almost, there's almost a, as bad as the doctor trying to strangle a companion. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, that's a sixth doctor uh, uh, reference. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, the, one of the things that they do in this episode, so we've seen the TARDIS console and the column that moves up and down when it's traveling. And in this episode, as they're talking about it, um, we get uh, some detail on how the TARDIS works. We're told that the power source for the TARDIS is located beneath the console. And as it's moving, the reason the, con- the console column goes up and down is because it's it's reflecting the surges of the power in in the TARDIS power source. And that if the tar- if the column came all the way out then the power would just flood out of the console and kill everybody. And um, th- and they end up using these ideas later on in the series uh, because we later get it established that there, th- the 
the power source is under the console and can come out. We see that happen in the parting of the ways way down the line at the end of the ninth doctor's time. Um, and, and, and so that's, uh, it's some neat backstory that doesn't pay off until, until way later. Yeah. I mean, we get a little bit of that in the, uh, in the eighth doctor, uh, story as well with the the heart yeah. of the TARDIS and that sort of thing. Um, and we saw that a little bit in Boomtown, that the power of the TARDIS console leaking out um, and the, the things that it can do. Uh, also, and I don't know about the exact chronology of this, but there's some potentially neat, uh, not fourth wall breaking, but fourth wall banging happening in this episode where the doctor, as as before they figured out the solution where the fault locator bank has lit up and he concludes they're all going to die, he says, can it be possible that this is the end? And it's like, this is the last episode of the original commitment. Um, yeah, and, right. and, and at one point he says, we have 10 minutes to survive. And that's just about the amount of runtime left in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, so, um, one thing I'm kind of left with is this question of what was making them do the odd things that they were doing, you know, that Ian's, uh, sort of, uh, hypnotic trance and, and uh, Susan with the scissors and all that sort of stuff. What was it that was causing them to behave oddly? I, I don't know that I ever figured that out watching I think, this. I think they kind of explained it as, you know, the, the, the psychic link with the TARDIS. You know, of course, that's a phrase they didn't use. They use it later on in the series. This idea that the TARDIS can create a psychic link with its uh, guests, if you will. You know, those who are riding in it, those who are flying it. Um, I think that's kind of how they explain it, like where the... Where, uh, you know, when Ian goes to reach for the doctor, he's at the wrong part of the console. Right. You know, because the TARDIS kept trying to guide him, guide the doctor to that switch. Mm-hmm. And every time they'd go to the wrong part of the console, something would happen. They get shocked or something. And yeah. they, I, I think that's the ultimate explanation is, you know, they have that they're all injured in this initial explosion when the when the fault first happens. And then the doctor and Ian in particular get additional electric shocks when they tried touching the wrong part of the console, okay. like open the door or the uh, or do some other things with on the console. Every time they'd reach for it, something would happen. I got you. Mm-hmm. OK, so as the episode ends, they're outside in the snow, uh, you know, cavorting. And then Susan finds something. She finds a, a huge footprint in the snow. And that right there is the beginning of the next episode or series of episodes the Marco Polo story arc, uh, right? Which uh, it turns out it is. Um, the, this is the first t- um, element, to, or the first time in, in for from Doctor Who the oldest, where we don't have any of the episode, any of the story left as a video uh, product. We have audio recordings and we have transcripts and that sort of stuff, but we have no, and we have some photographs, but we don't have. There's no way to go wa- back and watch this. As a story, yeah, it's it, it's really unfortunate. I hope they I hope they reanimate this one because um, Marco Polo from the photos we have it, the sets looks and costumes just looked stunning. Uh, they yeah. really you know spent a lot of money on it, and I've I've gone through Marco Polo because we do have recordings. I've gone you can get it as an audio book on Audible, and I've gone through the audio book of it, and it's a really nice story. Um, it's, it's actually a lot of fun. I, it's, I really miss not having, you know, video of this one. So I hope they do an animation of it. That would be nice. 
so I guess it's anything else you guys want to say about this? Anything uh, left to to bring up? Um, you know, again, nope. it's it's a locked room episode, so there's not there's not a whole lot to talk about, and it's only it was only two episodes, so about twenty five minutes each. I'd much rather have two, you know two two episodes of this than three episodes of Cavemen. I mean, this <laughs> this was a lot better. Yes, that's yes, true. It was. Okay, so that's it from us then. Uh, what did you think of this uh, first Doctor story, Edge of Destruction? Uh, let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Uh, leave us some feedback or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. You can find links to all our personal social media and websites on our show notes at sqpn.com. Um, we'll be back next time when we're discussing the... Uh, the tenth Doctor story, New Earth. That will be that's the second episode of the uh, the tenth Doctor's time, um, and also keep an eye out for we're going to be having a uh, a new episode of our Secrets of uh, uh, Star Wars where we're going to discuss uh, the secrets of Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Um, I know that this comes months after the movie came out in the theaters, but uh, it's just available on uh, streaming as 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 you uh, are listening to this. So later this week you'll see an episode of that, and then uh, next week we'll be we'll have um, secrets of the X-Files rebooted where we're going to talk about uh, the, the return of the X-Files in its most recent season which just uh, aired it's it's aired two short seasons bringing back uh, the original cast so uh, keep an eye out for those at sqpn.com um, until then uh, Jimmy Aiken thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who thanks very much Tom uh, Father Corey Stiga thank you as well Oh, my pleasure, and thank you. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening, and remember, one man's law is another man's crime. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.